Hello, and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast, where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. I'm your host, Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita, and this week I'm joined by Shirley Jackson, who heads up the Centre for New Industry here, and Senior Research Fellow, May Lamb. Hi, guys. Hello. G'day. <laughs> so today we've come together uh, here in Melbourne, NAM, to set out our expectations for the 2023 federal budget, which is now less than a week away. It'll be released on Tuesday evening, the 9th of May. We're going to talk today about what we'd like to see, what we think is essential, and what we believe will make this a true Labor budget, the first real budget, full budget, from the Albanese Chalmers government. So let's start with what we're expecting to see included. Um, May, any Thanks thoughts so from you? <laughs> well, uh, we certainly are expecting to see uh, some kind of announcement about the uh, sole parents payment, um, because we know that the government has been looking at that very closely in the context of the inquiry into employment services and brought forward uh, a request for submissions and ideas around Parents Next. Uh, and so we can expect to see some announcement uh, for the, uh, the age uh, of the youngest child turning uh, now up from eight to uh, 14 or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. um, earlier it was the, uh, a payment that was available to parents till their youngest child was 16, mm. um, but that was um, lost in, uh, under the Gillard government. Well, let, let's get, get a bit of context around that. Yeah. I think there's a, a, a misunderstanding about where this came from. So it was actually originally done in 2006 by John Howard. As he said, if you want to receive the parenting payment, um, you will now get it until your youngest child turns eight, unless you're already on it, in which case we'll, we'll keep you yeah. on it. Uh, and what Gillard did in 2012 was to end what they call the grandfathering. The grandfathering. And that was a real, really bad decision. And I think the, the current government has acknowledged that. Um, Anthony Albanese was very unhappy with it at the time, by all reports. So this is a really important uh, thing that a lot of us have been fighting for for a long time. And I want to shout out to Therese Edwards uh, at the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, um, to Sam Moston uh, and the women on that economic uh, women's uh, economic security task force because this is a really important measure. And as a, a newly single mother myself, uh, you can't leave a kid at home once they're eight years old. So we're hearing it'll probably revert to 14. Um, there is you know, some debate about that. 12 was seen as too young, I think. That's a, a really important transition time for kids. 16, why haven't they gone back to 16? We don't know exactly where they'll land, but I think the likelihood is 14. And I think that's in recognition that if women are out of the workforce for too long, particularly single mothers, it's very difficult to get back in. And so the later impacts of that on women's economic security are really significant. But it does, as you said, interplay with the Parents Next inquiry, which I know you, you yeah. made a really strong submission to that they seem to have taken some notice of, which is great. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's too early for us to uh, see uh, much in the way of uh, changes or any spending around employment services. Um, we know that the government's looking at that closely, but that's not due to report till later in the year. So we won't see uh, anything significant on that. And uh, Emma, I think you're going to talk about uh, job seeker payment, yeah. which is a large and important uh, uh, 
uh, rise to be, uh, which are being hotly debated at the moment by all quarters. I've been looking uh, at the data interfacing uh, the uh, earnings from work and the rate of job seeker payment because uh, nearly uh, 200,000 people are declaring some kind of earnings yeah. from work. Uh, some mm. kind of earnings from work. It's about 5% of the caseload. Um, so uh, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Mm. Um, yeah, it's 195,000 people who mm. had some kind of earnings from work. So And are still who, in receipt of income support. Who can get yeah. work, how much they get. I think this is an area for us to look at very, very closely yeah. in connection with the rate of the job seeker payment. Yeah. So who gets it? We know that uh, women are a growing proportion of uh, older women, a growing proportion of people mm. um, uh, reliant on job seeker payment and it's much harder to get a job when you're older. Yeah, so, let, so let's unpack that a bit. Yeah. And Cheryl, I'm going to bring you in here as a, yeah. as a representative of the millennial generation. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of disquiet uh, in the community this week at the suggestion yeah. that any raise to job seeker might be limited to people over 55. Mm. Um, there's a lot of anger, isn't there, Cheryl, about yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's always a folly to start pitting anyone against each other when it comes to these these funding arrangements. Like we can all understand why they might try and target them specifically when we're thinking about the broader economic situation that the government is currently facing, the um, debt obviously that they inherited. It's some of it good debt to do things like raising JobSeeker when everyone was dealing with the pandemic and, and making sure that people were kept in jobs. Um, but some of it was bad debt that was used to, <laughs> to fund things that aren't as productive. Kitchen renovation. Yeah, yes, that's right, that exactly. Um, and, <laughs> you know, we, we can understand those constraints that they're mm. faced, but um, when we're thinking about how the most vulnerable, that's anyone who's out of work. Like, obviously, there are different impacts, but, you know, I think there's a real mm. frustration from younger, and, I mean, not even younger. I mean, if you're 52, you're not going to get oh, that increase, right? Well, like... like the first thing I'm going to say is let's wait and see what actually comes out on Tuesday night. Uh, leaks and rumours are leaks and rumours. I suspect that what the government is considering here, there is there is already age differentiation in the uh, employment in the um, income support system, right? So if you're mm. over 60 and you're unemployed for nine months, then your payment automatically goes up by about $25 a week. I think what they're probably considering is dropping that to 55 from yeah. 60. Because we know, uh, and we've looked at the stats, May, and in we have the last sort of 10 to 11 years of statistics on who's on JobSeeker. Uh, back in 2012, there were around about 60,000 young people, 21 to 24. That's dropped down to about 45,000 today. But the proportion of those over 55 has risen and it's stuck. So we've seen uh, after the pandemic, the unemployment rates for young people drop quite a lot, but not so much for those older people. And it's because it's a recognition, which is why mm. that payment over the over 60s exists, uh, that it's much harder to get back into the job market. Having said that, um, the government does seem to be looking at uh, that, that reversal of the decision on single parenting payment. That will help around about 60,000 single mothers, or mainly mothers, some single fathers as well. Um, they're talking about increases perhaps to Commonwealth rent assistance uh, and then this measure uh, that's been floated in the media in the last few days about a, 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 you know dropping that um, age eligibility for the additional payment. All of these things, though, are a government, signs of a government that's wanting to target spending in this space really carefully to mm -hmm. avoid inflation. But 
there is absolutely no economic evidence that, that it's in any way credible from anyone that not that, that increasing the rate of job seeker across the board would be highly inflationary. We know, we know that if people get that extra money, they're going to use it to pay bills or to buy medicine or to visit the dentist. That's right. Uh, they're not going out uh, to the pub, most of them. Uh, so <laughs> uh, we have, with many others across the community for many years, um, been strong supporters of the Raise the Rate campaign and I think it's gratifying to see now that that has really built momentum and we've got some media attention to this issue. I feel a bit sorry for Jim Chalmers having to deal with it, but yeah. it is, uh, it's a live issue. That's right, and I think if we could see something like um, an increase to the Commonwealth rent assistance, I think that would be a really, really great outcome for younger people as a, as a consolation if they aren't going to raise JobSeeker for you know younger workers. Because even though, obviously, um, research that we've done in the past shows that there has been an increase in the number of older people who are retiring and still mm. renting or paying off their mortgage and still have housing costs, they're still far more likely to have paid off their home loans or have a house than some of those younger workers. So that would be a really great way to target the pain that we know those um, younger unemployed workers are. It would. Much as I don't like CRA overall as no. a long-term policy, That's it right. is a short-term way of giving people some support. But let's be really clear, what we would like to see is a meaningful increase to the rate of all working age income support payments, whether Absolutely. that be JobSeeker, Youth Allowance or DSP. May. And you can't look for a job if you don't have enough money. That's right. Absolutely. So you're actually reducing the capacity of people to look for work. Mm -hmm. We know that, for example, some training costs or education costs aren't always met by employment services providers. Not all transport costs are. That rate of $20.80 uh, per week if you're doing work for the doll <laughs> or uh, you know, something else it has not risen for more than 20 years. So I, I absolutely agree uh, with that point about there not being an age. Yeah, that's right, May. And uh, I remember there was work that we did, Emma, uh, I think back in 2017, 2018, um, working it out, really, really mm -hmm. great um, project where um, we spoke to a bunch of un unemployed workers and they all started reporting that stuff around the Centrelink diet. We've, all, we've all heard about that. Yeah. And it's very hard to be going for, to interviews, yeah. going and get a job. If you're yeah. literally skipping meals, you're That's not right. going to be at your best. So you're, you're really disadvantaging people within the labour market by not supporting them. And, and I think this is a really important point to make, that a lot of Labor's um, rhetoric around this has been, I think, misunderstood and misrepresented. Uh, the Treasurer says we want to get as many people into a job as possible. That's a good thing, but it's not the same thing as saying the best form of welfare is a job. Um, it is not, you know, uh, a simply a, an excuse for getting people off payments. I think there is, there has to be a recognition that, for example, 28% of people who are receiving JobSeeker have been assessed by the department, not by, you know, their own doctor, but by the department as having a partial capacity to work because of a disability. Mm. Uh, there is a time those people would have been on the DSP. That's right. Another 12% have a significant recognised mental health condition that prevents their capacity to work. So reduced capacity to work means anything from you can work up to 15 to 30 hours a week and yet you're still expected to jump through hoops and receive this very, very poor poverty payment. And then you've got about another 25, 30% who have caring responsibilities. That obviously uh, will be largely, or, or, or there'll be a, a hopefully a big boost to them with that 
the reversal of that uh, decision on the single parents payment. But this is, uh, as Shirley said, it's at least six years since we um, worked with Monash University and the Unemployed Workers Union to go around the country talking to people in this system. Uh, and that's why we've committed so many resources to really engaging with the review of Workforce Australia, because this isn't just about the level of payment, it's about the way we treat people who have been marginalised by an economic system that actually requires a certain percentage of people to be out of work in order to control inflation. So on that note, please, we would like to see a significant lift to the rates of income support for people, but we hope that more broadly over the next uh, year or so, we are able to make a real contribution to completely overhauling the way we support people in our economy to access and find work. Yeah, yeah. and it's... it. You, you bring up that that phrase that's often bandied around, you know, the best form of welfare is a job. Mm. And it's just always funny that the people who tend to say that don't want the government to spend money on creating jobs. Like, funny they that. don't want them to actually be doing all those things. Mm. And I guess that's why I'm so hopeful with this budget is we know that this government is committed to investing in the in the productive capabilities of the economy. Yeah. And that's why it's such a good time to be thinking about all, how all of these reforms interact together. Yeah, and that's a nice segue, Shell, to what do, we, what do we think they might do on that front, which is the... The real concern of the, the Centre for New Industry that you run here for us. What are they? What are we expecting in the reconstruction front? We use that word. It was you know something that we pushed, a framing that we pushed when Labor was in opposition, uh, and they've adopted a lot of ideas around reconstructing our economy and our industrial base. What are you hoping to see on that front? So it's a really interesting time for industry policy nerds like me. Um, for so long, we've been told that industry policy isn't something that we should be considering. It's it was referred to you know like in the Economist and and lots of other um, sort of mainstream economic journals as the, the policy that dare not speak its name, like something that we weren't supposed to do because governments were supposedly really bad at quote-unquote picking winners, um, which is just a narrative that um, those of us that, that believe in it know the productive capabilities that industry policy um, has for the economy. We really reject that narrative because it's never been about government trying to pick winners. It's more about trying to find and build a coalition of the winners around how we build our economy in a sustainable and prosperous way. So this is a really exciting budget for um, all of us weird uh, in industry people because the National Reconstruction Fund is the first time that we're returning to this idea of, you know what, the government shouldn't just get out of the way of the market, um, which has not been shown to have great impacts here in Australia. We haven't seen those benefits that we were promised. It was a, it was a good idea to, to try it for a little bit, but now's was the time it? to... Yeah, well, you know, some people... <laughs> Some people would say that. Um, I'm less convinced, as you know. Yeah. But um, now's definitely the time to start recorrecting and making sure that the government is growing the economy in the directions we yeah. know that it will need in the future. So seeing a full funding for the National Reconstruction Fund to see really good investments in things like you know climate change, so um, renewable technologies, um, in our scientific capabilities, in... Um, a whole range of like medical manufacturing and advanced manufacturing areas will really grow our economy and try and diversify our base so that we're one of those exciting economies like Singapore, Norway, the US, <laughs> places that actually do Aiming really, really high, well. Sure. Yeah, that's we right, that. absolutely. We, so that's going to be a really good I th one. I think, you know, the uh, essay published over the summer uh, by the Treasurer Jim Chalmers in which he you know, explicitly reference the work of Mariana Mazzucato and others in this space shows that he is taking that kind of mission-based approach to these issues, which is something that we've been pushing for a long time. Absolutely. It's gratifying to see. But it's also really important to note that Mazzucato's work really 
just explodes that myth that the market will deliver this innovation on its own. Actually, everything you think of as mm. a private market innovation, just about everything, got some sort of start with Absolutely. The and that's why it is so exciting because Mazzucato's work sort of showed that, like, the US has done a really good job of doing a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do approach to the international global market. While, you know, a lot of, like, US aid and, you know, like, funding arrangements like that require that governments get out of the way of the market, that's not how they manage their own economy. They've got a really strong government investment in the innovative and productive capabilities in the market, particularly um, through applied research, um, uh, government research labs, um, most notably in DARPA, which is the, the defence research program in the US. So many of the technologies that we rely on day to day from the internet through to space technology came through DARPA research. Um, obviously, NASA's a big part of that as well. It was a huge government program for a long time. We're starting to see them try and reassert themselves in a government space rather than the private market. And really crucially, there's this really fantastic... Um, a program that runs in the US called the SBIR, so the Small Business Innovation Research Grant, which really is, um, the NRF is playing in the SBIR space. Yeah. So it's really about trying to give businesses uh, a little bit of support to move into new areas or to scale up their production to enter global supply chains or to start expanding into new technologies that they can use. But crucially, the government retains an interest in any of the technologies or the firms that they are funding. So really acting just like any other investor mm -hmm. wouldn't expect to see a return on the investment that we've made. And that's something that Australia's done pretty bad on compared to places like the US, Norway, South Korea, Singapore, all those productive economies. There's a bit of optimism here that the, the reconstruction fund, if used as intended, could allow us to really uh, tackle some of those issues that have made our economy so moribund uh, over recent decades. And I think it's heartening to see a treasurer that gets at least understands the arguments, right, and is willing to prosecute them. Absolutely. And I'm sure the industry uh, minister's office will be uh, 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 very glad to have me <laughs> stop calling them and asking that we are going to return those interests in that's funded <laughs> through the NRF. Yeah, a busy time ahead for Ed Husick. Absolutely. Mate, you want Just to, to pick up on your point, Cheryl, that's where we can expect to see the jobs growth too and the quality jobs growth. So we know that there are a lot of people going into poor quality jobs that don't sustain, don't progress. Uh, you know, if our economy can uh, get that that boost on startups that rely on mm. more innovation and uh, <laughs> greater qualifications pathways, then we'll be much better off. Absolutely. And it's like the, the, the overall structure of the economy is what we're talking about here. So at the moment, the way that Australia's economy is structured is really way more reminiscent of like, you know, quote unquote, developing economies in sub-Saharan Africa. So <laughs> according to the Harvard University's economic complexity research, we rate alongside places like Senegal and Mali, not alongside those like big, exciting economies. And that's because largely our economic growth are now, you know, our economic future is tied to our resources industry, which has been a fantastic industry for us and will remain so with the critical minerals that are going into the um, renewable technologies of the future. But around that, we've only had a small and incredibly shrinking, um, uh, you know, quote unquote, second sector or the manufacturing industry. And then it's supported by a lot of service jobs. And while there has been some growth in professional areas that provide people with a pretty good life, the biggest growth has been at the lower end of the market when it comes to those sorts of jobs. And we're going to do a whole separate podcast, I reckon, on the diversifying Australia's industrial base. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to bring it back to the budget now. 
now. Mm -hmm. um, and again, May, you know, your point there about the lack of diversity and complexity in our economy and how that affects jobs, um, and Cheryl, what you're saying about the need to diversify that and invest in new innovative services. Well, we're not, you know, we don't invest in business here. We've had low business investment for a long time. Uh, where's all our economic growth gone? It's gone into the cost of housing and into yeah, the price yeah, of yeah. land. Uh, and so there is absolutely a housing crisis across this country at the moment. And we talked earlier about hoping to see some targeted support through Commonwealth rent assistance, um, but it's a short-term measure. And so longer term, um, I am hopeful that we will see some meaningful action on housing, on building public housing, uh, as well as community housing, yeah, yeah. not just community housing. Um, because, you know, the, the proportion of, of renters in um, the private market now is much, much higher than it was 30 years ago. We used to have a significant supply of public housing, which really provides some stability to that market. Um, there's a fight going on, obviously. The Greens don't want to support the government's key signature housing affordability policy, which was the Housing Australia Future Fund. Um, I'm disappointed to see politics being played with housing, uh, I think. Uh, it's too important for that and um, I hope that fund will pass and be strengthened. The way to do it is not to just block the bill, it's to move amendments to it, uh, to strengthen the, the floor on what can be spent and then let's look at what's next. Um, so housing is going to be a big battleground. Sadly, a big political battleground when really what it needs to be. Uh, just like climate change, this is a real crisis facing the next generation and Absolutely. I think it's all upon all parliamentarians to work together. Just on that point, Emma, we know that uh, for many people who are unemployed, while there may be jobs and while employers say they're screaming for staff, if you look at the cost of housing, the match of people to a job uh, will be absolutely stymied by the ability to access housing. 100%. So, for example, in, uh, you know, in Sydney's north, uh, the ability to find aged care workers is really low and in, at crisis point because yeah. the workers at the rates of pay they get uh, aren't finding it possible to live in those areas, mm. to deliver those services, um, or even to travel from the places where they can afford to live. So it's, it's a complex system that housing uh, costs are The economy's to. in a bit of a mess, really, isn't <laughs> it? I mean, um, let, let's yeah. you know, bring this back towards, before we wrap up, to a focus on the budget. Um, it is a really, it's going to be a really challenging budget for the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, uh, and the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher. Um, they have, I think, admirably maintained a focus on a core purpose of this government's program, which is to support women getting back into the workforce. Uh, they're doing that with a huge package around early childhood education and care, uh, which will reduce the cost there and then essentially reduce those effective marginal tax rates that stop a lot of women working more than three days a week, uh, coupled with the single parents um, payment and some measures targeted <coughs> at, at people that are out of the labour force. Uh, I think that's an admirable approach that they seem to be consolidating on. Um, there will be some good news, I think, for Jim Chalmers in this budget, and this goes to what Shirley was saying about the nature of our economy. Um, we are overly reliant on uh, exporting commodities, uh, and that is a long-term problem, but it has, we think, produced a short-term sugar hit for Jim Chalmers in this budget, because with the current supply chains and an impact on 
uh, energy prices around the world, we have seen huge windfall gains, some of which have trickled through to government revenues. Um, I am hopeful of seeing uh, an improvement on resource rent taxes in this budget that will take more of the profits being made by those big multinational energy companies and return them to the people whose resources they are selling, which is us, you know? Yeah, that's right. And I, I think it's so many of us um, probably who are listening today and definitely everyone who works in this office here are so frustrated by it because Australia really stands out amongst the other resource leaders where we haven't re- tried to recoup most of the resource wealth back for the people who are being displaced and, you know, who are, whose um, lives are being affected by digging up the things in the ground. So we'd really love to see something like that um, come through in this budget where we can try and recoup some of that mineral wealth back to into the Commonwealth. Yeah, and use it as other countries do to yeah, support yeah. better social outcomes across the country. Um, this is... I think there are a lot of expectations around this budget. There's a lot of pent-up frustration in the community that this is going to be the first full... Labor government, the first centre-left budget we've seen, uh, full full full-year budget for well over a decade. Uh, A lot of people want the government to do everything at once. Um, I, as I said, don't envy uh, the people who are in charge of the purse strings. Um, But I think what we can expect to see is a fairly cautious approach. Uh, We are in a high inflation environment. The RBA shockingly put rates up again um, on the on the first meeting at the May meeting of the Reserve Bank Board, uh, surprising everyone across the country. Um, so there is a, an inflationary issue to target. That means it's hard to splash a lot of cash around the electorate. But at the same time, the cost of living uh, is a real problem. And when we cost of living is a really nice euphemism for saying you know a lot of poor people are suffering very badly. Uh, so we do need to see some targeted support. We also need to see, though, and I think what we can expect to see is those longer, medium and long-term investments in things like the reconstruction fund, in employment services, in ways of investing in the in the foundations of our economy because of the rebuilding effort after not just a decade of neglect but really the best part of 30 years is going to take a long time. Yeah, that's right. And it's even though we, we know that it's going to be a constrained budget in some ways given the you know context into which it's entering, but they've already flagged a bunch of really big areas that they're investing in. I think that's the, the really interesting thing about this. While there's going to be a lot of talk about how we maintain sort of you know, discipline in these difficult times, make sure that we're, you know, going some way towards paying down some of the debt, make sure that we're uh, not allowing uh, different expenditure areas to expand beyond a sustainable way. We're already talking about the National Reconstruction Fund, which is billions and billions of dollars that we're putting into the productive capabilities of our economy. Uh, We're talking about a National Transformation Authority to help manage areas that are undergoing structural adjustments influenced by climate change, whether they're traditionally reliant on those carbon-intensive industries like coal or steel um, and allow them to transition to more renewable sources. Mm. And we're also talking about a significant um, investment back into the public capabilities of the government. Mm. So while in some ways I think it's going to be... And an investment in the care economy. Absolutely. You know, so in some ways it's going to be a, you know, oh, we have to be... Uh, restrained in some Mm. aspects, but they're certainly not letting that hold back their agenda, which I think is what's so exciting. It is exciting and it needs to be drawn, attention needs to be drawn to this. Um, There's a lot of anger and I think we've we've got used over recent years, we've got used to governments just dealing with what's immediately in Mm. front of them, responding to 
uh, ginger groups to vested interests, handing out money here and there to people that make the most noise. Uh, and this government's rightly resisting doing that to some extent. Now, it's not, you know, it's not right to uh, for the first the first group to be disappointed to be the poorest in the country. No one's suggesting that. Um, but there are, you know, they've, they've stared down the pharmacy guild on doubling um, the amount of uh, drugs you can get, uh, medicines you can get per prescription. So there is, I think, a quiet determination to deliver a longer-term agenda here. Um, why that's important is because we can't afford to keep patching things up in a system that doesn't work uh, and has been shown to have let so many people down. Uh, and while this budget may show, it may show a slight surplus, we never know, but certainly will be close to being the first balanced budget in about 15 years. The Treasurer and the Government know, and everyone paying attention knows, that the structural deficit the difference between the longer-term revenues our government's bringing in and the costs or the, the, the demands of investing in the care economy, in new industries, in the transition to a green economy and in um, the, the provision of, of, a, you know, of jobs and foundational um, support for the care economy, those are long-term demands that we need to invest in to have a good standard of living for the majority of Australian people. This budget's not going to uh, upend uh, the status quo, but I think there is um, an exciting opportunity over the coming two to three years to have a real conversation about where we raise the necessary revenue to invest in the things that we demand as a society. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that conversation happening over the next two to three years. And we'll be right in on the ground floor at that here at Per Capita. All right, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks, Shirley. Thank you, May, um, for coming here and sharing your time with us today and your thoughts with our listeners. And thank you all for joining us. Be sure to join us next week. We'll be back to talk about what actually was in the budget. Uh, this is largely speculation at this point, although well-informed. Um, if you're also more interested in the budget and you're a real nerd, we're having a federal budget analysis webinar on Friday, the 12th of May at 1 o'clock. That's in collaboration with our friends at the McKell Institute, the Chifley Research Centre and the John Curtin Research Centre and we'll be joined by uh, Assistant Minister for the Treasury uh, and Charities, Dr Andrew Lee. It's a free online webinar and tickets are available at humanitics.com or via the per capita website. You can find a direction there. Please join us next time when we'll continue on recap to examine inequality and work together towards a fairer Australia. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. And we're committed to providing ad-free and editorially independent content too. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present.